91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. Next, Sonali Kolhatkar, Yes Magazine, racial justice editor and host of Rising Up, broadcasting on KBCS Fridays at 7 a.m. and Thursdays at 5 a.m., speaks tonight at Seattle Town Hall, 7.30 p.m. Kolhatkar is out with a new book titled Rising Up, The Power of Narrative in Pursuing Racial Justice. I wanted to hear from you why you decided to write this book. Yeah, thank you so much, Yuko. Um, The book really came out of a repository of experience and information that I'd been gathering for 20 plus years as a journalist, as a woman journalist, an immigrant journalist, a South Asian person, and you know, person with a foreign-sounding name who's new to the country. I have firsthand experience with what it's like to be the kind of journalist that tells a different story or stories and coverage from a different lens than say, a white American-born journalist might, certainly working in the space of mainstream news. And so I developed a radar for seeing racial cues and seeing stereotypes being disseminated through mass media. I developed a radar for when those were harmful and assumptions that played on internalized racist tropes and very much developed and promoted a completely different way of covering the news, which I think many independent journalists, especially journalists of color, develop over the years and notice uh, we tell stories differently. And so this book was born out of being in those spaces and of of existing in the skin that I have. Uh, So writing about how storytelling furthers racial injustice and how it can further racial justice really felt like a natural fit for me as a writer. When City Lights approached me to do a book about race and racial justice, I told them, you know, I'm not an activist, I'm not an organizer, but I am a journalist and, and I would write it from the perspective of a journalist. And I'm really glad that they liked the idea as well. So that's basically what it is, is just a book that helps readers see narratives on race when they're unspoken, especially in mass media, and become purveyors of racial justice narratives themselves. Is there like a specific turning point that you were particularly moved by the power of the media? Um, I'd have to think about that. I mean, the moment that sort of radicalized me you can say, was when the United States launched a war in Afghanistan after the September 11th attacks. And I had been working with Afghan women even before September 11th. I'd been working with a feminist organization called RAWA, the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, who are the oldest feminist organization there myself and a group of supporters had been helping to you know run a nonprofit to help raise money for them and these are very and I still work with them by the way these are very very proud fierce incredible women it's an underground organization and one of the things that i noticed right after the september 11th attacks in the lead up to the war in afghanistan and then in the immediate aftermath of the 
start of the war and then for years throughout the big, big lie that the U.S. media just kept pummeling was that they were going to war to save Afghan women. And I remember it just used to make me so angry and it used to just rub me such the wrong way because that sort of white savior attitude of these poor women who are victimized by these backward fundamentalist Afghan men who are Muslim extremists and and these poor women have no agency. They're forced to cover up from head to toe and we need to go and set them free from the Taliban. And of course, that view of what was happening in Afghanistan completely missed the point of the fact that there's been an underground resistance to the Taliban and to fundamentalists. It also completely missed the fact that it was Western nations, including and chief among them, the United States, that worked with these fundamentalist groups, the jihadi mujahideen groups in the fight against the Soviet Union through the 80s and elevated these misogynist men pouring, you know, millions of dollars into their pockets and and illegal weapons and helping them form militias and then acting as if it was surprising that that Afghanistan would be turned into a nation where women were systematically subjugated. And it used to just drive me crazy, the saving Afghan women theme throughout American media. And it, it really, like, radicalized me. It got me very angry. I used to write screeds about it. It was among the first few things that I'd ever got published. That's a stereotype that holds today. These victimized women who have no agency. What turns out that for decades, the women that I work with have been organizing underground protests and organizing underground schools, risking their lives and challenging non-violently the creations of the proxy warriors of the United States. So yeah, maybe I think that would probably be a big a big <laughs> turning point for me in terms of critiquing the media. Whiteness is understood to be the norm. And when a newsroom is led predominantly by this particular group, then the experiences of people of color who may be in the minority in the newsroom, if even represented at all, it affects the way that the content goes out. Could you speak to how deeply that goes? Yeah, I mean, we see we see whiteness as the default in this country. And there's a very good reason for that. You know, it's a country that was built on white supremacist projects of slavery and the genocide of indigenous Americans. And we've never fully dealt with that or even in any significant way dealt with the legacies of the horrors, the racial and racist horrors that the nation was built on. And so it is seen everywhere. There's this undercurrent throughout our mass media. And one of the things that I write about in the book is, you know, corporate mainstream journalism. There's, of course, right-wing journalism that normalizes white supremacy. And then there's the so-called liberal media, the corporate media, profit-making media that normalizes what the right-wing adopts by not challenging it enough, by appeasing it, by giving into it, and um, by, by allowing it to go uncontested. And then I also look at Hollywood and the mass media narrative setting industries of Hollywood, where you see 
whiteness play out in story after story after story because the writers' rooms have traditionally been white. Now that is changing. And so I also write in my book about how the changing demographics of the nation are resulting in different kinds of newsrooms and different kinds of writers' rooms. And the uh, the products created by those more diverse newsrooms and writers' rooms are significantly different and are challenging the default of whiteness. Um, one of my favorite chapters in my book is Copaganda, which is the pro-police through lines of scripted television that have normalized for us policing in equ- and equating that with safety. Um, in a way that is so insidious. And I interrogate that and I tease it apart, hopefully in a way that allows people to notice it when they watch TV shows and movies and see how policing, and, and which is a very, very racialized institution, how it's normalized um, and how that is little by little getting challenged by writers of color. So, you know, that's, that's the way in which I think um, it's really, really important for us to think about where we see white stories being told and how they can be very harmful to people of color and how we need to really start challenging that. Could you give an example that might describe how people of color are portrayed in, in yeah. related shows might, might. Look? Yeah. It's a thing that hasn't really been noticed very much before, but it was something that I noticed in, in kind of surveying media and I've often noticed, which is that Hollywood, especially white Hollywood writers, love to portray cops as people of color. Black cops in particular are Hollywood's favorite type of protagonist. I don't think it's done consciously, but what it does is when you cast Black folks as cops in TV shows, what you're doing is conferring innocence on a police officer by making them a person of color. And so you can't hate a person of color because that would make you a racist. So if you make them a cop, you've got to love the cop as much as you love the black person. And, you know, this, this is the sort of undercurrent, the the idea behind it, I think. Uh, and But it, it, it was something that I dug around and, and, you know, there's only a little bit of research on it. Um, but in having conversations now with people that this book has help to generate, it turns out that a lot of actors of color notice this in Hollywood. I have a friend whose wife is a TV actress, and she gets offered roles all the time to play cops, and she turns them down. And so and so this friend of mine said he notices this a lot as well. And it's an anecdotal thing that that Hollywood loves to cast Black folks as cops. And so I point that out in the book, in how it is something that needs to be challenged because another thing Hollywood loves to do is portray or promote vigilante behavior by cops and glorify vigilante behavior. So cops, even uh, cops are routinely breaking the law on screen and they're usually doing for so for a higher goal, for a higher purpose. And what that does is that in real life, when cops break laws such as killing unarmed people, in real life, when that happens, those of us who have really been kind of brainwashed by so-called liberal Hollywood <laughs> tend to believe that the cop was justified in their behavior, even when they break the law. Because, you know, we, we have just been trained by Hollywood to think of police and policing as 
noble do-gooders whose only and highest priority is keeping the rest of us safe. And Hollywood plays a huge role in that. And I, I think we have to absolutely challenge that uh, because it does a huge disservice to the disproportionately black and brown victims of police brutality in real life. And, you know, there's an unwritten rule in Hollywood that you don't make victims of vi violence uh, people of color, especially of police violence, they, they, they've got to be white in order to be accepted and acceptable and get the show made. It's sort of an unwritten uh, rule that Color of Change, uh, an organization run by Rashad Robinson, found and, and reported on. So this is something that we absolutely need to challenge. What are some of the surprising takeaways that you've come away with in you know, doing the research for this book over your past 20 years of work in journalism? I think maybe one of the most surprising things was that when we want to do narrative work, we have to do it in the right way. And we are told that this nation is deeply polarized. And the only way in which we're going to get together and be on the same page and, you know, see eye to eye is by giving into the right, right? Every election we hear this, that the Democrats start pandering to white rural voters are the ones we are told need to be setting the agenda. And what I discovered in the course of writing this book and really even my personal life realized was that actually we have opportunities to change minds every day if we would only take them and if we would do it only in the right way. We've gotten used to debating one another, but debates, I really am convinced now more and more, are not very useful ways to explore ideas. What debates do is, ba debates are basically civilized fights. Both sides of a debate walk away feeling smug and, and usually digging their heels in and kind of being even more entrenched in their worldview. And what I learned through the research of my book is that, first of all, debating somebody who disagrees with you is never going to end up helping both people move in the same direction. And so I write about things like deep canvassing and Loretta Ross's beautiful course that she, online course that she does called Calling In, which is the opposite of calling out. And instead of calling each other out, I don't mean to reject calling out people in power and institutions. We need to keep doing that. But I'm talking about individuals calling each other out doesn't actually work and it serves to alienate one another. And I think what I learned that was really surprising was that if we start to talk to one another in ways that are a lot more open and a lot more personal and a lot more human, we can't help but humanize each other. So for example, deep canvassing is something I really encourage listeners to look into. Uh, People's Action, which is an organization, a grassroots nationwide organization, has adopted this as a way to change minds about ballot measures and ele in election time. And instead of going door to door canvassing and asking people to vote on the topic that you want them to vote on, what they do is they talk to people about their personal lives and talk about how certain issues and policies impact them and the people that they love. That's it. And then they ask questions. And it turns out you can get people to drop their defenses and be a lot more human with one another if you come at each other from a place of shared humanity and shared values and set aside all of the brainwashing that we might be subject to from our media and the narratives. And 
that was surprising to me, but it was also really heartening. And so I hope that that's something that my readers will also come away with and thinking about how they can be engaged in narrative shifting themselves. You don't have to be a journalist or a filmmaker to do narrative work. And if we don't do narrative work, we are never going to change this country. Narrative work on its own is just PR, but policy work without narrative is fleeting. And any changes that we make to our nation policy-wise, if we don't kind of bring people along, if we don't also change their hearts in addition to their minds, then we lose the gains we've made, right? Like we think about the fight over abortion. But if we start changing the culture, then changing the policy will not only be easier, but that change might stick. And so we do all need to be engaged in narrative shifting work. I hope they do embrace this idea that we can be cultural change makers ourselves. You are an immigrant to the U.S. and you had spent time in Dubai. And what have been some striking things to you as you've, you know, transitioned from another culture and how media looked there versus Mm -hmm. in the U.S.? And as I understand, your grandfather was involved in some media as well. So curious about this. (laughs) Yeah, I, um, I'm born to Indian parents, but I was uh, born and raised in the United Arab Emirates, a country that doesn't give you citizenship for being born. There's one of the few countries in the world where you don't have birthright citizenship. So I was literally born an immigrant, right? Most people, wherever you're born, you're from there. But I was born an immigrant and I grew up in Dubai and my fa- my grandfather was the leader of the journalists trade union and was one of the founding members of one of India's two leading communist parties. And I never really thought about journalism till after he died. I grew up as a, you know, wanting to do science. I was deeply attracted to physics and astronomy. And I went to school for that. And I graduated with a master's in astrophysics. And I was working at Caltech before switching careers and, you know, ending up in journalism because I wanted to do something more meaningful in my life. Coming to the United States, of course, I came when I was very young. I was only 16 when I left my entire family behind and I started my freshman year at the University of Texas at Austin as a physics undergrad. And it was overwhelming. Everything I knew about the United States before I came to this country was through Hollywood. Uh, TV shows, you know, my favorite TV show growing up was like 21 Jump Street. I used to watch a copaganda show and not even realizing that that show normalized policing in schools. It was basically a bunch of adults pretending to be teenage school kids and being present in schools. But yeah, so, so, you know, I grew up with these caricatures and stereotypes of what the United States was. And of course, when I came to this country, I think, which is a case of anybody showing up in a new country you've never been to, the reality is, is so much different from what you've heard about and, and the movies that you might have watched or the books that you might have read. And I, Probably the most striking thing to me in the United States as an immigrant was learning that every part of the United States is so geographically, but also culturally different. It's a huge country. And I think a lot of non-Americans don't realize how culturally diverse the United States is. We think of the U.S. as this bland, homogeneous space, because that's the kind of impression that we're given 
Um, you know, America is about hamburgers and Fourth of July and patriotism and fireworks and Disneyland. But what I discovered as an immigrant was, you know, every major American city has a beautiful historic Chinatown. Mexicans and Central Americans have reshaped American cuisine. Um, you know, filmmakers of all different stripes are changing Hollywood. Um, Black Americans have revolutionized music, not just in the United States, but all over the world for generations. And when you dig deeper, you realize that this country is such a diverse and such a culturally rich nation. And so much of that is related to its racial diversity. And that is the thing that I hope my book really, really helps people embrace is that we, you know, as a nation on paper are meant to be a multiracial democracy. We have never achieved that, but trying to achieve it and that goal that we work towards is such a beautiful goal. It is such a beautiful thing that is in store for all of us if we as a nation would only embrace the idea of a truly multiracial democracy. That means rejecting minority white rule. It means allowing people of color to have power in narrative setting industries and to achieve equity in all of the things that matter, housing and healthcare and education and sharing power, you know, in a democratic way. So that is, you know, it, being an immigrant and seeing what the United States was really like and what it was really about has shaped everything that I feel like I love about this nation. And it's, I hope it shows in the book that, that it, you know, critiquing America is not a negative and angry project. It's a project born from love and moving toward collectivism and other values based in love. Wow. Thank you so much, Sonali Kohatkar, author of The Power of Narrative in Pursuing Racial Justice. Before we get off, was there anything else you would might want to add? I really hope people get a copy of the book from your local independent bookstore. And when you do, please go to Amazon and write a review. Don't buy your book from Amazon, but do write a review because those things really matter. They, they help a lot in, in selling the books. And I hope people come out on Wednesday evening to Seattle Town Hall to see me in conversation with Yes Magazine's Sunaby Brydam. Um, I'm a, the racial justice editor at Yes Magazine, and it's going to be a wonderful event hosted by Yes at Seattle Town Hall, and tickets are available at Seattle Town Hall's website. So I really, really hope people come out because I would love to meet you and there'll be a reception afterwards as well. Sonali Kolhatkar is Yes Magazine racial justice editor and host of Rising Up, a weekly show on KBCS. It's Fridays at 7 a.m. and Thursdays at 5 a.m. Kolhatkar speaks at Town Hall Seattle this evening at 7.30. You can pick up tickets at the venue or online at townhallseattle.org. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.